Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you now to turn in them to um, Matthew chapter 5. This is our final week for a little while um, in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working most of the year through the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to take a break for the summer, and we will be, Lord willing, in Proverbs uh, for the summer, which I think will be very helpful for us as we take a look at, um, at that incredible book uh, for about, I don't know, 14 weeks, Lord willing, something like that. But today, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue here together to exalt in God by exalting in his word. So, Ephesians, I mean, <laughs> Matthew 5, uh, verses 38 through 48. The word of God says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we come before you now needing your grace and needing your word for our lives. Nothing more that we need than your word. And Lord, we all have our ideas and we have our thoughts about how to do things rightly. Lord, I I pray that we would humble before your word. We would be humble before your word. And we would seek with all of our heart that your word might shape us, even if it goes against our grain. I I pray that you would work here this morning. I pray that you would encourage hearts that are discouraged. Pray that you would strengthen people who feel very weak. I pray that you will give us courage and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Oh, how good it is that we stand before you in Christ alone perfected by Christ, by his blood shed for us, his body that was broken for us. Lord, may that be our banner. May we be so quick to defend your name and your honor and so slow to defend our own. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are several Small ways to read the Bible. Small ways. And when I say small, I mean ways that diminish the meaning of the text and ways that keep us from fully understanding and appreciating and obeying the Bible. Let me just right from the beginning give you three common small ways to read the Bible and all of them having to do with this text. The the first small way is to read a passage with a message so penetrating and so different from the, what we're used to, so against our grain, 
that we simply dismiss it, saying something like, it can't mean that. And then without as much as a struggle, we move on in a dismissive way, reading the Bible. People do that with this passage a lot. As if the Bible is meant to simply confirm our bias. It tells us all the things we already know are right. Right? That's what the Bible does. And since this text sounds against my grain of thinking, it can't be right. Or it can't mean that. Jesus could not possibly mean that I should turn and offer my other cheek when someone slaps my face. That's ridiculous. It can't mean that. It's too radical, too against my grain. I think I'll just move on. Don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. That's a small way to read this text. The, the Bible is a radical confrontation to our natural way of thinking. You get that, right? The Bible is a radical confrontation to the way that we normally think. God did not give the Bible to confirm our bias, but to smash it, to shape it, to change it. The Sermon on the Mount is an especially potent smashing of our natural way of thinking. This is God's confrontation with the world. So don't be small-hearted and simply hear something about God or God's standard of righteousness that goes against your grain and then respond by rejecting it because it goes against your grain without even lingering a while and wrestling with it and pondering what it might mean for your life. The second small way to read the Bible is to read something quickly without much thought and just assume that your like, first read, your, your surface understanding is right and just make assumptions based on that, draw conclusions. People have done that with this passage a lot as well. Uh, many Christians have read this and decided that it means that Christians should never own a weapon, that Christians are prohibited from being police officers or fighting in the army or the Marine Corps, or support capital punishment, or stop someone from harming someone else. Turn the other cheek means Christians should be total pacifists and not resist evil in any way. A lot of people think that. Because it says, literally, do not resist the one who's evil, so bam, don't resist evil people. I heard someone offer that interpretation just this week in a Christian debate about gun control. Using this passage as support, the gentleman went so far as to say that there's no such thing as just war. This Christian just war theory that we hold to since Augustine. And that maybe even Hitler should not have been resisted. And I think that position is ultimately owing to a small way of reading the Bible. And I don't say that because of my American upbringing. Rather, because it doesn't seem upon reflection to be what Jesus is getting at at all. The third small way is to read the Bible in a kind of a, a legalistic approach to words. Without consideration of the spirit or the intent behind the words. And that's also really common with this passage. And it's a way to get around hard texts. Do you know what I mean? Jesus said, turn the other cheek. But you know what? That guy hit me on the mouth, not the cheek. <laughs> And his fist was closed, not open. He didn't merely slap me, so these words don't apply. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, a ridiculous example maybe, but I read that kind of toying around with God's word all the time. All the time. And that was the issue with the way the Pharisees would read the law. It's actually what's in view with these antitheses that Jesus is offering. This dismissive toying with words by the Pharisees. The, the law says, do not commit adultery. But, and the Pharisees would read that and say, we're not going all the way. 
So it's not, a, it's not technically adultery. It's just lust. Or the law says don't murder. I don't have plans to kill that guy. I just hate his guts. Or the Bible says love your neighbors. And the Pharisee might respond, that must imply that I can hate my enemies. That's a small way of reading the Bible. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, with divine authority, is calling us to read the Bible in big and appropriate ways. He's actually calling out all the small ways of reading the scriptures. This is a radical confrontation to our natural way of thinking. And it requires some thoughtful reflection, some humble submission to its application. This requires obedience to the spirit of the words. This is not a small-hearted exercise. Friends, Jesus actually said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're not going to dismiss those words. We're not going to toy with them. We're not going to just like write them off because they seem too hard for our natural way of thinking. We're not going to read them quickly and draw conclusions. We're not going to try and get around them. I'm afraid to dismiss the words of Christ and you should be too. He is the Lord of Lords. You should fear dismissing him. This is not a game. We want to hear Jesus on this. We, we want to let his words have their way in our lives, right? Even if it goes against our grain, I am praying that God would radically transform us as Christians by his word as we linger over them a while, seeking to apply them to our lives. I'm pulling together two sections, two antitheses. I've, um, I've, I've been taking them one at a time, you know, one little section at a time. I'm pulling in two, and I'm doing that because it seems like they are two sides of one coin. The message of the first one is in verses 38 through 42. It's not to resist the one who is evil. We don't have to hold on to our rights or our defenses or our honor before others. We can let it go. We can trust in God. And if that sounds like a hard pill to swallow, then get ready for the other pill. The message of verses 43 through 38 is to love our enemies. We don't merely not resist the one who is evil, but we go even further. We love and we pray for and we show kindness to those who oppose us and hate us and persecute us. That's a, that's a horse pill to swallow. That one takes a glass of God's grace to get down. So let's just walk through these two antitheses humbly and with a desire to see God through his grace have his way in our relationships. Have his way with our marriages. Have his way with the way we relate to others in this world. Our business relationships. Those we do not like. Those who wish us harm. Those who use us. We have to begin by noting that Jesus actually quotes the Old Testament law in verse 38. He's quoting from a few places. Uh, one of them is Leviticus 24, 17 through 21. One of the times this is mentioned. And I'm just going to read that for you. Leviticus 24, 17 through 21. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall, be, shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, he... As he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. 
Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. All right, so let me just note, that's in the Bible. So the question in Matthew 5 is, is Jesus saying that's not right? I mean, that's the law of God. That's the law that the psalmist said is perfect, reviving the soul, right? Is Jesus correcting it? Or is he raising the bar on the Old Testament law? Some say that. I don't think that's what he's doing. The law that's quoted here is absolutely right. It's called proportional justice. The law prevents disproportionate justice. Because that's not justice, right? Like, like putting someone, someone to death for stealing an apple. Or a slap on the wrist for someone killing somebody. God has revealed to us true justice, and that justice requires proportional sentences. The, the sentence must fit the crime, right? Isn't that how we say it? Jesus is not in any way pushing back on that. So what is he doing with it? Imagine that you know the law of proportional justice, and you decide that that shall be not merely the basis of the laws of your country or your state or your city, but the absolute standard by which you live by, you personally live by. In other words, you don't merely agree that judges in criminal cases should dole out proportional sentences, but you hold that if someone does something to you, you will be sure to pay it back. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in a proportional way. Jesus isn't teaching that the law of proportional justice should be abandoned but that that should not be the line in our hearts as Christians. Likely the Pharisee would read that law in Leviticus and then decide that the line for which your response becomes sinful, like your retribution becomes sinful, is when you go beyond proportion. So you exceed, if someone puts out my eye, I have every right to put out his eye. I just can't chip his tooth while I'm doing it. Or if he chips my tooth, I have every right to chip his tooth. I just better be careful not to put out his eye. That would be sin. So we need to make a distinction here. God loves equitable justice. God loves justice. God, all justice comes from God. He loves justice. He's a just God. He loves scales that are balanced. Proportional sentences are good. And that notion comes ultimately from God. Jesus isn't doing away with that. He's saying that you, a person transformed by the grace of God in Christ, should not simply see that as the line that you go to in your relationships with others, so long as you don't step over that line. Do you follow? And I think, by the way, that this is about gospel-transformed people. I, I, I read this passage having already read Matthew 5, 1 through 9. I know who this blessed audience is. This is to those who, who have seen their own spiritual poverty and come to Christ as poor in spirit and mourning their own sin and seeking God's mercy alone, longing for his righteousness. This is to people who have been transformed by God's grace. Such people when offended by someone else, do not simply turn to Leviticus 24 to see how much damage they are allowed to inflict back. They look to their father and seek to be like him. It seems to me that Jesus is calling for a certain posture here. 
a posture which does not esteem one's own rights and safety and honor as most important. A posture that, with lion-hearted boldness, does not believe that he has to fight for his own way or his own rights or his own stuff. A posture that holds those things with an open hand. We don't have to hold our respect and our honor with a clenched fist. Like you're the only one who's going to defend you. If you don't, if you don't, you don't defend yourself, who will? You can hold it with an open hand. So you, you can turn the other cheek when you're wrong. You don't have to think that if, that, that if you don't demand satisfaction, you'll be weak or not respected. Your honor, your honor will be tarnished. Since you hold those things with an open hand, you're free from defending your honor. Free. You can entrust your honor to God. If someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak too. And I think the principle there is that if someone asks undeservedly for something, you can give it to him. You, you, you don't have to fight for your stuff. You don't have to hold your stuff with a clenched fist. You can entrust your stuff to God. If someone compels you to go one mile, go with him too. You don't have to guard your rights. You don't have to hold your rights with a clenched fist. You can entrust your rights to God. Now note with me, Jesus is assuming and he's assuming an injustice against you. Like he, he calls the person evil, right? They, they've done evil. They've wronged you. They've really wronged you. The person wronging you is evil. He is wrong. But their wrongness shouldn't be the line for you. It is not tooth for tooth. You can trust God to defend you. And I think the application of this principle is super broad. You, you don't have to answer verbal insults with insults. You, you don't have to get back at everyone who's wronged you. You are free, friend, from that tit-for-tat posture that so characterizes our world. Free to hold your rights and your stuff and your time and your honor with an open hand and hold on to God and his justice and his grace with a clenched fist. All right, now we've got to go here because most people read this and they just think about violent offenses and like how to defend ourselves. And so I, I think it's a rare application. I do. I, I think that most of us, I, I've never faced this yet. I mean, maybe I will one day, who knows, but it's a narrow, I think there's so many applications that are broader that we need to think about, but we should think about this too. Does this mean that Christians should never defend themselves or defend their homes or defend their families or own guns? Does this mean that Christians should never bear arms? Or that Christians should never have a concealed carry permit? I think the most helpful way to answer those kinds of questions in light of this passage is to think in terms of the posture that's presented here. The posture Jesus is prohibiting is holding my rights and my honor and my stuff with a, with a, and my safety with a clenched fist. That's what he's saying don't do. So if I have a gun, because my posture is that, is that if someone wrongs me, I want the ability to quickly and efficiently give them what they deserve because I won't be harmed. I won't be wronged by anyone. Then I haven't heard Jesus on this point. Maybe my ear has been plugged up by, by the waxy American notion of don't tread on me. 
Brothers and sisters, we are not called to a don't tread on me posture. But, you know, you got to tease this out, right? Like, what if someone wants to harm not me per se, but my wife, or my children, or my friends, or an innocent neighbor? Would it be sin for me to use force, like even lethal force, to defend others? And then, you know, you got to think about police officers and soldiers, and what about them? I, I don't think that's what's in view here. I don't think that's what's in view me defending others is not me holding on to my rights with a clenched fist, is it? And there are other questions to ask, like, would, would it be, I mean, if you're trying to work this out, would it be genuinely loving to my wife and my children and my friends if I refuse to protect them when it's in my power to do so? I, I don't think Jesus is, is prohibiting all types of defense. There's a lot of complex questions related to this, and we have to work through them if we're to obey Jesus here. But hear me, friends. I do think that this passage should absolutely govern the way that I think about personal defense and about defending my rights and about defending my stuff, whether in the courts or on the basketball court or on social media or on the street corner or in church. The overarching principle that I think is sufficient to guide us through our questions here is that because of God's grace to me in Christ and his sovereignty and his justice, I am free. I am free to hold my safety and my honor and my stuff and my rights with an open hand. And I am free to lay them down if needed. I am free from having to fight for myself as if no one will if I don't. I hold on to God with a clenched fist. And my rights and my stuff and my honor with an open hand. Of course, that goes way against our nature. And, and not, by the way, just against our American nature. A lot of people say that's against our American upbringing, our American nature. I, I think this is against human nature. And I can prove it. We could all go over to the nursery, okay, right now, and we can take a fire truck out of a toddler's hands. I mean, you want to get on the bad side of a toddler? That's a great way to do it. What's the first word lots of little children learn, or one of them? Mine. Yeah, somebody said no, but yeah. No, mine. I think this is in our nature. I think this is our human nature to fight. I mean, I think it crosses cultures, it crosses times. And it is just ingrained in our nature. But God has transformed us, right? I mean, if you are in Christ, you have been transformed. And you know how? Think about how you were transformed. By Jesus Christ laying down his rights and his safety and his honor for you. Jesus laid down his rights right in the face of real indisputable injustice. The most significant injustice in the universe was committed against Christ. And he, having full power to defend himself, chose to lay down his rights. Jesus held his rights with an open hand and he laid them down while holding firmly to the will of his father. And he called us to follow him in that. 
And not only that, not only laying down our rights, but also loving our enemies. I mean, wow, that's where the next paragraph goes. Loving our enemies. Again, the Pharisees had a very small way of reading the Bible. In verse 43, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I could go back and help you see from the Old Testament that love your neighbor is in there. It's in the Old Testament, several places. But hate your enemies, nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. That must have been an inference that the Pharisees drew. They likely reasoned that since we're called to love our neighbors, that must mean that we are free to hate our enemies. And now we just have to decide who our neighbors are and who our enemies are. And with that small but maybe sophisticated toying with God's word, they reduced God's demand to basically doing what all people naturally do. We all love people who are nice to us. We all are nice to people who, we all greet people who greet us. And we all don't like people who don't like us. But again, Jesus did not come to simply affirm who we naturally are. He came to radically transform us and make us new. So that we not only love our friends, we love our enemies just like God does. Jesus gives two pretty simple examples of how God does this. Verse 45 says that God makes the sun rise on the good and the evil and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. That means that God pours out his grace in a common way on both wicked people and good people, just people and unjust people. The wicked farmer might be happy that there is rain on his crops and the evil man might enjoy a nice warm sun in the morning. But he should know that it is not necessarily because he is in friendship with God, but because God is kind even to the wicked. He's just, but he's kind. That's how our father is. And since that's how our father is, that's how we should be. And you know, we, we should be especially this way since Christians have especially benefited from God's kindness towards his enemies. Not just in a, a common way, like the sun rising and like rain watering the earth, but in a special way. Listen to Romans 5. 10 through 11. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's really helpful, right? We, we can think of plenty of people who are wicked, who are glad for rain. And we can think, yep, God, God's nice to his enemies. But this strikes close to home, right? I was his enemy and God has been kind to me in Christ. He loved me while I was his enemy. Whether I knew I was his enemy or not, doesn't matter. I was opposed to him. And in that same way, because we are his children, we're called to love our enemies and to be nice to those who harm us, show kindness. It's what our father is like. And if we are genuinely his children, 
we will be like that too. There must be a family resemblance. Sons walk like their fathers. I want to tell a quick story that I think demonstrates the complexity of this, how it comes together in Christ. It's about a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. Den Hollander. Maybe you've heard the story. I think I did share it one time before, but Rachel was a child gymnast with uh, USA Gymnastics, and she was horribly abused by her sports doctor, a famous Olympic doctor named Larry Nassar. Have you heard this story? He had abused her and many other girls through the years. He was a first-class monster. Rachel, Rachel went on to be a lawyer, and as an adult, she gathered the courage to bring legal action, to spearhead legal action against Larry. And she did that, in her own words, in order to stop him from hurting others and to stop other abuses like that committed by others. And so she did, successfully. In the course of things, many other women came forward and testified against the doctor. 250 plus reports of abuse. There were many, many victims. Nassar was convicted and he showed zero remorse. Zero. Lied. Said it was all part of being a doctor. Before the sentencing... Rachel gave the court a victim's statement, and those are intended to kind of show the court the damage that the perpetrator did, the, 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 the criminal did, uh, and also to persuade the court to bring appropriate justice. That's why we have victim statements. And so she's, she's giving her victim's statement, and I watched it, and you should Google it today. It was so moving, so moving. She basically did four things with that victim's statement. First, she told Larry Nassar that what he did was very harmful and that he hurt many people beyond what he could imagine, wrecked lives. She wanted him to know the pain that he had caused because obviously he had no clue. Even at that point, he was not remorseful. Second, Rachel told Larry that she had forgiven him freely and undeservedly the way that Christ had forgiven her and she said very clearly, I hold no ill will against you. None. Though, she, though he fully deserved her hatred. Third, she wished for Larry genuine repentance. She wished that he would come to Christ and be saved and be forgiven for his sin. Feel the weight of that. She actually shared the gospel with him in those moments, wanting him to find forgiveness in Christ. And fourth, Rachel turned and looked at the judge and asked her to give Larry the maximum sentence possible under the law. So that no other women would become his victims and so that would-be abusers would be on notice. What I saw in that statement was an incredible show of love to one's enemy and forgiveness and a great laying down of rights, a waving of retribution. Rachel forgave him. She did not wish him harm, but good. She even voiced her prayer that he might be saved. She loved her enemy with no compromise of justice. And she acted to defend the rights and the safety of others. 
There's a lot of moving parts, guys, to this. I know, a lot of moving parts. But I think she demonstrated the posture called for here in these two paragraphs in Matthew 5. This is the posture we have been called to, to hold with an open hand our rights and our honor and our safety and our stuff and to hold with a clenched fist our Savior, our God, who is sovereign over all and his mercy and his justice and his right to bring appropriate justice at the appropriate time. We don't take vengeance. We trust in a God who brings perfect justice who holds all sin accountable. That we hold to with a clenched fist. Let's not be like we, has, like we have always been since the nursery. Our first word, our first response to injustice and harm should not be mine. If you are in Christ, you're called to be different. You're called to be perfect, perfected by the blood of Christ, which was shed for you to make you righteous, to make you perfect. Christ laid down his rights to perfect you before God. That's awesome, isn't it? We hold to him with a clenched fist and being perfected through the spirit as he continues to transform us from the self-seeking, self-protecting, self-worshipping spiritual toddler that we all once were to the lion-hearted, mature child of God that we now are. And I just think we should ponder those things a while today, this week, in our lives. We should ponder them till they govern our heart, govern our relationships, Govern our marriages. You know, we often treat marriages like the same tit-for-tat thing we do in the world. She said something mean to me. I'm going to pay her back. I'm going to be silent. That'll do it. Let it govern your response to your neighbor and the dispute about their dog or the tree limb that fell on your fence. Let it govern the way that you respond to the guy who insulted you online or in person or the one who cut you off on the highway. Let it shape your response when you're harmed by others, when evil people clearly wrong you. By the grace of God in Christ, let's be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Let's walk like our Father in our relationships. That is the work of God's grace in us. When we show that kind of response, that's the power of the gospel being lived out in us by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that we would not dismiss your words that we would not let sensibilities that have been shaped in our lives since our childhood and in this fallen world govern the way that we respond to others, but we would, we would follow you in all of these things. Oh Lord, would you radically shape our relationships and our conflicts for your, great, for your glory. 
And Lord, I pray for any who come here not understanding that they are your enemies, not seeing that, not feeling particularly rebellious against you, but just not having any time for you or any thought of you or your gospel. Oh Lord, I pray for your, that you would show your kindness this morning to them, open their eyes to the hope of the gospel and make friends out of enemies through the work of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.